Uh, we are continuing through this series on encounters with Jesus, and um, uh, what a great opportunity to just walk through different encounters where people throughout the scriptures encounter Jesus and what that looks like and how that uh, walks itself out. So we are in John chapter 4. Um, I'm going to read through the passage first, uh, starting at verse 46 is where we're going to start today. Remember uh, last week, um, uh, of course, two weeks ago we talked about the woman at the well, and then last week the, the results of that is she went to the town in, in the Samaritan town and brought, brought them all back to Jesus, and they encountered Jesus, and now we have Jesus has left uh, that region and has come to a place where we've already heard the name, Cana in Galilee. So, if you would, if you have your copy of God's Word, John chapter 4, verse 46, if you would stand with me as we read through this, starting at verse 46. It says, So he came again to Cana in Galilee, where he had made the water wine, and at Capernaum there was an official whose son was ill. When this man heard that Jesus had come from Judea to Galilee, he went to him and asked him to come down and heal his son, for he was at the point of death. So Jesus said to him, unless you see signs and wonders, you will not believe. The official said to him, sir, come down before my child dies. Jesus said to him, go, your son will live. The man believed the word that Jesus spoke to him and went on his way. As he was going down, his servants met him and told him that his son was recovering. So he asked them the hour when he began to get better. And they said to him, yesterday at the seventh hour, the fever left him. The father knew that knew that was the hour when Jesus had said to him, Your son will live. And he himself believed in all his household. This was now the second sign that Jesus did when he had come from Judah, Judea to Galilee. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for the opportunity to sit and to listen and to hear you. Lord, we pray that you would speak to us this morning. We pray that your spirit would guide and direct us. Father, we pray that you would capture our thoughts and our minds, that we would be able to see you. We pray that we would be able to see Jesus, and we ask this in Jesus' precious and holy name. Amen. Please be seated. I want to walk through the story a little bit. We already mentioned a little backdrop, you know, that Jesus has just returned from Samaria um, and has returned to Judea, and then he travels from Judea. He goes into Galilee, and he comes to a place called Cana. And if we remember Cana, that was the place where Jesus performed the miracle of turning the water into wine at the wedding. And that was his first miracle that's recorded in John, and it's the first of the signs as we read throughout John's uh, gospel account. He talks about the different signs that Jesus does, the great signs. And so this is actually the second one that John mentions as indicated in verse 54. But Jesus finishes up with the Samaritans. He comes here, and uh, it says that a royal official shows up. And he's this man in desperate need, and, and as we walk through the story, you see that, that the story goes that uh, he comes to Jesus, he had heard of Jesus, he had, he had heard that Jesus had come from Judea to Galilee, and he went to him and he asked him to come down and heal his son. The request, come heal my son. I can't imagine what that's like. Come heal my son. And as he 
does so, you know, you, you, we think of Jesus and we have these ideas of what Jesus must be like. We, we think through what, is, what, is, uh, what would it be like to be there? I don't know if you've ever done that, but I oftentimes uh, think, what, what would it have been like to see Jesus in the flesh right there with me? To have that opportunity to talk to Him, to touch Him, to, to uh, embrace Him, whatever that looks like. And, and I imagine Jesus as, you know, you know, oftentimes I wonder how our uh, images of Jesus are influenced by the modern artwork, right? And of course we all know that Jesus definitely had blonde hair and blue eyes. Uh, and he was fair-skinned. Um, but I, I think of Jesus, and, 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 I, and I don't envision an encounter with Jesus would be like what I read in this passage. I envision that if I had a son who was sick and dying, and I had traveled to come find Jesus, and I said, Jesus, can you come and heal my son? I imagine, because of what I would think of Jesus, I imagine he would right away drop everything and he'd come and in his love he would, he would perform this miracle and, and I would get to witness this incredible thing and Jesus would, would just do it right away because he loves me so much, right? That's what I would envision. And, and you get this kind of odd reply from Jesus, don't we? So this man in his desperation comes to Jesus and he says, come and heal my son. And what does Jesus say? Notice what he says in verse 48. Unless you see signs and wonders, you will not believe. Is Jesus this cold-hearted man who has the power to create stars by the breath of his voice that he can speak into existence these gigantic Bursts of energy and light and all these things he's created. You know, you, you, you hear of people who go to the Grand Canyon, and I, and I heard the story of somebody who, they, they, they were going to the Grand Canyon, and they came out of this, and into this clearing, and they saw the Grand Canyon and immediately burst forth into worship because they see this incredible thing that God has made. You know, we, we, we go to the most beautiful places on earth and, and, and we realize that God has made all these things. And so we see Jesus who has done this and Jesus' response who has the power to do all things is, huh, unless you see signs and wonders, you will not believe. And it makes me wonder what is going on, Right? The story goes on, it says the official, after hearing this, he says, Sir, almost with more uh, urgency, come down before my child dies. It's a plea, and I think there's a lot of lessons we can walk through into this. Is this response from Jesus a criticism? Is it cruel? Is it cold? I think as we'll look at it in a little bit here, it is insight into the very heart of Jesus. We talk about these encounters as somebody who, who encounters Jesus and, and their life is forever radically changed. I don't know anybody who has truly encountered Jesus whose life wasn't forever changed. And here we have this, this royal official who wouldn't have necessarily believed in Jesus, who wouldn't have been, uh, he would have been a Roman, he would have been part of the government, he would have come to Jesus and he's got this desperation and here we have Jesus not criticizing, but giving us insight into his heart, and here it is. He cares more about the royal official's soul than his temporary physical needs. 
Jesus always cares more about our soul and our heart than our physical temporal needs. It doesn't mean, and please don't mistake this, it doesn't mean that Jesus doesn't care about physical needs. It, he, he is always seeking to care for His people, but He cares so much more about the eternal, about the heart and the soul of a human being than about the physical needs. Not only did he care more about this royal official's spiritual well-being, but he cared about the whole family. So you get the second plea with great desperation. Come down, my son is dying. Come before he dies. Uh, it's amazing because later on we read that, that Martha had the same understanding when, when she comes up to Jesus after Lazarus has been dead and she says, if you would have only been here before he died, he would have lived. So there's an understanding of who Jesus is, though it be uh, a little skewed or a little, uh, uh, and this is where Jesus' reply, and we're going to dig into this a little bit deeper later, this is where the reply of Jesus really is coming to the surface he is dealing with people's hearts so jesus then speaks a word and says to him go your son will live and he actually performs the miracle we learn later on in the passage that at that very moment when jesus says go your son will be healed he's healed and as i walked through this in my own study i thought to myself does it take more faith for how Jesus works this miracle. And think about it. Would it take more faith for me to hear Jesus say, it's done, or for me to witness Jesus coming, grabbing the boy by the hand and raising him up? It actually takes quite a bit of faith for somebody to just say, no, it's taken care of, just go. Instead of visually. But that's, and that's where Jesus is saying Unless you see signs and wonders, you will not believe. And what's amazing is, this man does believe. And Jesus wanted them to believe in him, not just in what he could do. And that's the story of Jesus' ministry, isn't it? That throughout Jesus' ministry, people are always concerned about what Jesus is going to do and not concerned about who Jesus is. And that is the battle of our spiritual walk of faith. Is So oftentimes we put so much emphasis on what Jesus can do and what He will do rather than who He is. And the reality of our Christian walk of faith is that it is about who Jesus is and not what He can do. We know that He can do all things, and, and, and believing and understanding who He is does not change the matter of the fact of what He can do. And how oftentimes does Jesus do the miracle in our own lives just like this, and we completely dismiss it because we aren't willing to acknowledge it. You know, I, I think of uh, so many times where we have a miraculous healing um, and we dismiss it as, well, maybe the doctor made a mistake in the diagnosis. Or maybe there was something wrong with the machine. Or maybe we, we you know, and we completely dismiss the fact that God is doing a work. Because we struggle with the supernatural. He suddenly got better. What a coincidence, right? The story goes on that the official heads home and he receives the news. Miracles happened. A miracle happened exactly as promised. And what is the result? The results are, one, the boy is healed, but ultimately there is spiritual healing. It says that he himself believed and all his household. 
And this was now the second sign that Jesus did when he had come from Judea to Galilee. What an incredible story. And I want us to dive into that because I think there is something about this encounter that reveals something drastically important, something so vital to us as we walk out our faith that if we can see it and we can grasp it, I think there are three lessons that we can realize are necessary to have an impactful faith, one that is effectual on the physical and spiritual needs of our life. So, I don't know what brings you here today. I don't know if you have a circumstance in your life that you are sitting here saying, I don't know how that's going to turn out. I don't know what the fix is for this. I don't know how to get through this next step in life. I am in such despair that I realize I can do nothing. Guess what? You are exactly where that royal official is. And he encounters Jesus, and I think that there are three valuable lessons on requirements that we can get from this. Number one, faith that is effectual. Faith that moves requires humility. It requires humility. We have to get to a place where we, like the royal official, say, I must go to him. So oftentimes in our life, as we walk through life, and, and I don't know if you're anything like me, but for me, if there's a problem, I have a solution. And I'm going to go through solution after solution after solution to try and fix whatever my problem is until I get to a place where I realize that all of my solutions are garbage. And we have to get to a place like the royal official, and I want you to really picture this royal official and understand who he is and, and what this meant for him to come to Jesus. It is number one, a concession, and the concession is, I can't do it. I imagine that he didn't just suddenly get sick and, and the first option for him was to go to a man whom he did not know, whom he didn't necessarily believe in. I imagine his First attempts were find a doctor, find somebody who knows about illnesses, find somebody who can maybe help medically, find somebody who has the answer, and that's exactly what we do. Until we get to a place where we come to the end of our rope and there's nothing left to go to, and we say, I can't do it. Brothers and sisters, that is the best place a human being can be. When we can finally say, I can't do it. I can't do it. Because that's the reality of us, is it not? That when we walk through life, there is nothing apart from Jesus that we can ever do that is successful. Not only is there a concession that requires humility, there is a confession. Can you imagine this royal official? He was an important man. He was a man in in the government that had power, had influence, had resources, had uh, 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 social status, had all these things, probably had all kinds of uh, wealth and, and various things. And it says that he, when he heard that Jesus had come from Judea to Galilee, it says that he traveled from Capernaum, to Cana. That is a 16-mile trek. I don't know about you, but I don't like to travel by foot more than like the living room to the fridge. But when I need a glass of water, I got to make that trip, right? 
There's a confession in that very action. I need help. I need help. Like I said, there is no greater place for us as human beings to get to a place where we realize I can't do it. And then the second step is to let go of pride and in humility say, I need help. I can't do it. I need help. This royal official, most likely Roman, it had to be humbling for him. Can you imagine with each step of that journey, traveling to go to a person, a person of great influence, pride, wealth, having to go and humble himself and walk to a man that, that, that he would have to submit himself to and say, I need your help. So oftentimes in life, we walk around with pride saying, I can do it, I can do it, I can do it. People ask me, Nate, you've got projects that you do, but you never ask for help. You know why? My pride. I don't want to bother anyone, and I want to do it on my own. Not because I don't like people, but because I don't want to ask. But there's a confession that needs to be made confession that this royal official makes i need help he makes it by his plea he makes it by his his uh, actions that he goes and he travels 16 miles to get there it requires humility and not only is there this concession and a confession but there is a confidence that he must have which requires humility and the confidence is that it's not in self but in jesus in Jesus. There must be an emptying of self-confidence where we can say, you know what, I can't do it. I, I can't rely on myself, but I need Jesus. And guess what? I believe that Jesus is able. And Jesus waits eagerly for us to come to that point. And He waits eagerly for us to come to Him. And He's always waiting. So the first lesson from this royal official and this encounter with Jesus that I want us to grab hold of and to hold fast to is if you're going to have needs met, if you're going to have a faith that is effectual, you have to come to Jesus. But we see Jesus. Jesus is the answer. Jesus is the only thing that we should be having our heart and mind set upon and focused upon because it's not in, in things that we accomplish. It's not in things that we do. It's never in anything in us, but it's all in Jesus. And Jesus is the only thing. And if you have to sit here and you say, well, what does it take for me? The disciples said, Jesus, we believe. Help our unbelief. You want to have belief that is effectual and fervent and is impactful? It's all about Jesus, and you have to go to Him. It's absolutely essential. It requires humility. Number two, it requires heart. Notice what the royal official says. He comes to Jesus, and he says to Jesus, uh, My son is dying. Will you heal him? Come down and heal him. And Jesus says, unless you see signs and wonders, you will not believe. And the royal official says to him, sir, come down before my child dies. There is a principle that we have to understand when we talk about faith. Faith is not easy. Faith is not easy. 
Oftentimes there are obstacles. Jesus doesn't just talk to the royal official in this way. He does it with a Canaanite woman. He does it over and over in Scripture because He wants us to realize that coming to Him, there are obstacles in our own life that we must overcome. The effort. He had to move. He had to make that trek 16 miles. We have to trust in the impractical. That, that when we think about it, that this man had to say, uh, I'm, I'm not a man of faith, but I'm going to go to Jesus? Really? It's a trust in what is not in the normal logic of our thinking, but an understanding that it's faith is something that we cannot see, but it is something that we must believe. It is a trust in the impossible. Humans could not heal his son. They never were able to, and so the son was dying. And so he had to trust in the impossible that only one person could do. God. There's a purpose in it. God wants us to be strengthened and to cling to Him alone. What is the purpose of faith? The purpose of faith is that we would rely and depend wholly on Him. It's not this idea that if we can just hold tight to Jesus, because guess what? We can't. It's not our faith that is doing the work. It's our faith in the one who is able to do the work, who does the work. And as God brings obstacles in our life, how oftentimes we totally miss the purpose of what suffering is in our life. And we sit here and we say, suffering, woe is me. I hate suffering. Believe me, when I, have done, uh, when I did the, the Spartan races, I'm running this race and I'm suffering in the body. I see you laughing, Jake. He didn't suffer at all. For me, who is out of shape, going through this suffering, what's the purpose? The purpose is that God is perfecting and He's doing a mighty work. He challenges us when He asks us to believe and trust Him. He tests us to remove the idols of our heart. Sometimes God causes suffering in your life because He knows there's an idol in your heart that the only way to, to, to remove it is to, to cut it and that causes pain and it causes suffering. And God wants us to, to go through it not because He wants to hurt us but because He wants us to love Him with all our heart. And He removes the idols. And He purifies us. He refines us. God doesn't test us to see what, we can, what He can learn about us because He already knows everything about us. But to increase our faith and dependence on Him over and over again. Luke 18.1, He told them a parable. Why? To the effect that they ought always to pray and not lose heart. Over and over again, Jesus is allowing suffering in our life. God allows suffering in our life, not because He wants to see us miserable, but because He wants us to come to Him, to plead with Him. God didn't bring this sickness, this illness on this child to cause pain to the royal official, but because He knew that through the suffering, He would come to the one who could do something about it. Maybe you're sitting here today and you've got some sort of suffering, pain, trial that you're going through. Have you stopped and asked, why is God allowing this? Because maybe the Heavenly Father who loves you so much is trying to get your attention. 
And there's a product in this. It requires heart, and, and through all this, the heart is that it is refined by fire. Look at the response of the royal official here and, and, and his whole family. Faith. Effectual faith. So if we have a lesson here, the first one would be that it requires humility because God wants us to get to a place where we see and recognize that we need Jesus. But not only that, we have to realize that it requires heart that I have to be willing to overcome the obstacles in my life. And there are many. That's why in Hebrews chapter 11, verse 6, it says, Without faith it is impossible to please God. And then notice what it says. One has to believe that He exists. That requires heart. And that He rewards those who diligently seek Him. That's effort. So this man comes to Jesus, he makes his way and he pursues Jesus in such a way that even when he is kind of denied in a sense, or at least where it seems like to us, he says, no, 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 Jesus, come, come, I need you. And Jesus responds, go, your son is healed. The third thing that I think this text teaches us about faith that is effectual is it requires hope. What does it say? It says the man believed the word that Jesus spoke to him and went on his way. See, there's a tragedy how often we fail to take Jesus at his word and trust him for the miracles he performs. How often we look at difficulty and blame God instead of realizing there are incredible opportunities for God to work in my life. And there's trial in it that what we will do when we have no outward assurance is very much a demonstration of what is inward in our heart. Let me say that again. What and how we respond when there is no outward assurance is an indication of the depth of our faith. This man had no outward assurance that Jesus had healed his son. But it says he believed him at his word and he went. That's incredible faith. Brothers and sisters, that's a faith that we need. He went home with no outward evidence. And there is a triumph in this, and I want you to understand this. This is so vital. This is such an important part. It was in his going and not in his arriving that he received the assurance that his faith had been awarded. He could have stayed there and never left and said, I don't believe. Jesus, just heal my son. Jesus, just heal my son. Just come and heal my son. And Jesus said, no, your son's healed. How many times in life are we pursuing God and asking Him for to do something for us? And He's already done it, but we're not willing to believe Him and go and realize that in the going we will receive the assurance that He has done it. But we sit and we wait and we're like, God, would you just answer me? Would you just answer me? And the reality is He has already answered, but we're not going. It was in the going, not in the staying, not even in the arriving at where he was, but it was in the going that he received the assurance. Imagine if he would have, wouldn't have left but continued begging Jesus instead of taking him as word. Maybe Jesus has answered your prayer, but you aren't willing to go. 
And what are the rewards? Twofold. His son is healed. There's physical healing. And second, there is spiritual healing. Life changed forever. And he could have missed all of it. His family could have, you know, gone through it and they would have seen the healing and they would have believed and maybe they would have never connected the two had he not been willing to go. And he would have missed out if he wasn't willing to go on the joy of seeing all this. It requires humility. It requires heart. It requires hope. If you're going to have your needs met, if you're going to have a faith that is effectual, you have to take Jesus at His word. Does God, as Jesus says, unless you see signs and wonders, you will not believe. Does God have to perform for you in order for you to believe? And we sit here and we say, well, I'm sick. I've got this incurable disease. Does God have to perform a miracle for you to believe Him? I don't know how the bills are going to get paid. I've heard stories. I've heard stories of a check coming for the exact amount in the mail to pay my bill. What an incredible thing. We rejoice in that. Does God have to perform in order for you to believe Him? Can we not believe that God says, I take care of my own? Can we not believe when God says in Jeremiah chapter 29, verse 13, you will seek me and find me when you seek me with all your heart? I think that this is an incredible passage that not only talks about what effectual faith is, but also what saving faith is. We ask all the time, and we get all tangled up in this weave of of theology oftentimes, of what is saving faith, right? Because it's all about God doing the work, and so um, we we get into this kind of this bogged down discussion about, well, what is my requirement in it? Right? It's all of Jesus. It's always all of Jesus. Jesus. But that doesn't exclude us from personal responsibility. It's all of Jesus, but there is something here that we can learn about what is saving faith. It requires humility, doesn't it? Where we sit and we say, one day I will face a judgment. And I know in my heart of hearts that there is wickedness. All kinds of wickedness. And one day I will stand before a God who will look at me in full righteous judgment. And I can try and clean up my act all I want, and I can try and do everything. I I can go to church every day for the rest of my life. I can put money in the tithe box uh, every week, and I can uh, 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 do all kinds of works. I can serve. I can help my neighbor. I can do this and that, and, and I will get to a place where I will wake up each and every morning and know, and know, It is not enough. What is saving faith? It requires humility where we can say, in my heart and in my mind, I recognize I can't do it. I need help. Is that not part of our our understanding of what saving faith is where we get to a place where we realize that there is nothing in and of myself that I can ever do, that I can never come to a God who is holy and righteous and just and stand before Him in innocence on my own? But I have to, in humility, come and say, I need help. 
It requires heart. Not just an intellectual understanding, right? But an understanding that I have obstacles along the way. Myself being the number one obstacle that I must overcome. A confidence in my flesh. A fear, a doubt that I'll never be enough. I have to overcome those with an understanding that it also requires hope that Jesus said it and I believe it. What is saving faith? People ask me all the time, well, what is the requirement? What do I have to do? As uh, the wonderful text in Acts where Peter and John preach this incredible sermon and eventually the people in the audience say, what must we do to be saved? I think our answer is here in this analogy, this, this, this story, this true story of an official who comes to Jesus because he's got a desperate need, and Jesus answers it, and he believes it, and he acts upon it. Brothers and sisters, saving faith is when we get to a place where we realize that there is nothing I can do on my own, and I confess that I need Jesus. And I'm going to overcome the fears and doubts in my life and and overcome the logical uh, understanding of humanity that says this is how scientific things work. And, And it's not a contradiction of science, but it is a reality that there are things that are supernatural that I can't comprehend in this life. And God is able and He is going to do a work and I'm going to put my hope in that work and in nothing else. And that is saving faith. What do I want us to get out of this? Hopefully a faith that is effectual. Hopefully a faith that impacts our life. I don't want to live my life day to day in my flesh. I want to live my life in a way that I believe that God said it and I'm going to trust Him. And I want to live my life day to day in a realization that I can't do it and I need Him every single day because if I don't, guess what? I'm coming up with solutions on my own and I'm terrible at solutions. I can come up with solutions till I'm blue in the face, but almost all the time, in fact, every time, they end up failing. Don't ask my wife. She'll be able to tell you many of the solutions that I have come up with. Sometimes they appear to work, but that's me living in the flesh, not dependent on Jesus. You know, one of the things I have appreciated about my wife over the years is when we have come to a place where we needed a solution, and man, I can't tell you how many times I'm convinced that God puts me through situations like this all the time because I am so dependent on myself, because I am one of those guys who likes to, uh, to I don't know what you say, pick up yourself by your own bootstraps is that the right saying i'm sure i botched it but it doesn't matter i think you get the point i'm a try and do it my own when i have a project if if my transmission goes out i ain't paying somebody to do that i don't know how to do it but there's a youtube video for it we'll figure it out and i'm gonna try it and usually mechanics love me because then i add to their work I can't tell you how many times I've tried to do something and I come to my wife and I'm frustrated, I'm depressed because life is failing. 
And she says the same thing over and over again. Have you prayed about it? Of course. Dear God, please help. No. You know what I mean? I want to live like that. Before our decisions, we are going to the Lord and then we're trusting Him because He's already answered it. Imagine if as a church we had that kind of faith. We have problems. We're broken people. We're going to, I got news for you. Uh, until Jesus comes back again, this church is always going to be broken. Can't tell you how many times I've said to myself, January 1st, man, that was a tough year. But I'm looking forward to this year until January 1st of the next year when I can say, man, that was a tough year. It's going to happen every year. You know why? Because it's filled with broken, sinful people. That's the reality of who we are. And I want to get to a place where I realize that and I, I get to a place where I realize uh, uh, that I am in desperate need of Jesus. And imagine if as a church we recognized on a day-to-day basis, both as individuals and collectively as a whole, we said, Jesus, we need you because we are dying. Would you help us? That takes humility. And if we were willing to overstep the bitterness and the brokenness that we have in relationships to overcome those obstacles and to say, we need each other. And the only way that's going to happen is through Jesus. And we took the effort to do that, to pursue God. And even when things appear to be a discouragement in the midst of that pursuit, we say, no, 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 I'm going to keep pursuing Him And I'm going to trust Him when He gives me His Word. And He has. He has declared, I am the resurrection and the life. He has declared, I am the way, the truth, and the life. Brothers and sisters, our lives would be transformed just like this official who was on a path of hell and destruction with his whole family. And in one moment of verse 51, sorry, verse 50, it said, the man believed the word that Jesus spoke to him. And brothers and sisters, his life was forever changed. Imagine if we lived like that. Jesus spoke the word and we believed it. And how our life would be forever changed. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you. We thank you that you are a God who still does mighty, miraculous things. But God, I pray that our hope and our heart would not be set upon the mighty and miraculous, but upon a living God who is holy and just, who is able to do all things. I pray that our heart would not be set on your performance, but on you and your heart and your character. Lord, I pray that we would come to a place where we recognize our desperate need of You, whether we have a relationship with You or not. Lord, I pray that we would forever, each and every day, wake up and recognize we are desperately in need of You this day. 
And I pray that whatever obstacles come our way, we would overcome those by the blood of the Lamb and the word of the testimony of Your people. And Lord, I pray that our hope would be in the truth of what You have proclaimed. You have said it. It is true. And we believe. So Lord, we come before You and we ask for Your guidance. We ask for Your help. We ask for Your encouragement. We ask for the hope that only You can provide through Jesus Christ, our Lord and Savior. We pray in Jesus' precious name. Amen.